Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. And today we're talking about Baldur's Gate 3. Developed and published by Larian Studios, the game was released for PC, Mac, and PS5 in 2023. Uh, Actually, also Xbox in 2023, most recently. And will be spoilers, so heads up if you are sensitive to that. I will say I'm walking into this getting spoiled because I'm only about halfway into the game at 50 hours in, but I think I've played <laughs> enough to have an opinion on it. Oh, absolutely. This is one of those few games that, uh, well, one of those magical games that is extremely long, but pretty damn good throughout. This is the culmination of Josh and I's quest to play all the Baldur's Gate, and Clint, you have joined because this game is extremely popular and extremely good. <laughs> I tried. I, I recently tried to jump into the original Baldur's Gate, but without the nostalgia lens, uh, there's some quality of life in the last 20 years that's really hard to overlook. So I decided to wait for this one. Yeah, Clint, I think I got about six hours into Baldur's Gate 1 and 12 hours into Baldur's Gate 2. Uh, so I did not get into those as well. And I think a lot of that was uh, the old UI, the old conventions of the CRPG genre. Yeah, it was hard to it was hard to jump in fresh. I assume if I had played it when I was younger, I would remember it with rosy lenses, and it would be easier to get back into. But coming in fresh, I don't know. It's hard. That second edition D and D is no joke. And yeah, if you're not coming in at least willing to read a lot, or ideally with just some background knowledge, you're gonna you're gonna have problems. But we're not talking about those games. We're talking about Baldur's Gate three, which um. You know, if you haven't heard of this one by this point in uh, late 2023, you've been living under a rock, winning Game of the Year awards at uh, the Keeleys. Um, it is... And everywhere else. It was and either, everywhere else, yeah. <laughs> in a year where Tears of the Kingdom released and got no love because of Alan Wake 2 and uh, Baldur's Gate 3, this was a good year, evidently. Yeah, yeah, once again, a great year for um, for games. Bad year for the industry. Great year for the games. I want to take a minute before we we dive into the game itself to talk a little bit about Larian. I don't know how much background you guys have with this this studio, but um, the games they made before this are Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2, among many others. You know, they had, like, games going back to 96. Uh, I only knew about those two were, like, the only two I ever heard them. Yeah, that that's definitely where they started sort of climbing the, the ladder of popularity. And, you know, I played... Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2, both are great. I love 2 especially. I lost Steam on 1 after a mere 50 hours. Um, but this is uh, this is a studio that's been honing this sort of CRPG thing that they've been doing and are kind of like the main torchbearer for it, to my, to my mind. Yeah, I can't think of, maybe since Dragon Age, a CRPG that I've enjoyed more than this game. Yeah, and, and now that Bioware is kind of like, I, I guess their star is kind of faded... Yeah. Um, they can't seem to figure out how to release a game anymore. <laughs> so also, everyone got fired. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm glad that someone was there to pick up the torch, and and boy, Larian did so in fine fashion. Um, worth mentioning though that this is like a sea change in terms of the level of game that they put out as well. Like Divinity Original Sin Two was a huge and popular game, but the studio went from 140 people to 400 for this game. Um, mostly due to the need for like cinematics and things of that nature, which shows on the page for sure. Oh yeah, I, I uh, did. Any of you guys check this out at all during early access? Because it's worth mentioning. Yes, it released this year, but people playing on Steam could—I mm-hmm. think it was the entirety of Act One—they could play since last year, right? 
That's right. Yeah, three years in early access, and um, it was three years. Three years. It's been in early access since 2020. Oh my god. Um, so yeah, this is definitely a uh, a game that thri- or benefited a lot from that that process. Um, I pers or I purposefully stayed away from early access for this game because I knew I was going to play it eventually, and I. Like most things early access, I usually just want to see the final product. Same. I'm very much... I mean, it's cool to be the first one there with some kind of games, but this one I wanted to have it feature complete and see it all the way through all at once, so I waited too. You know, I think it's interesting that they did choose to go through early access because this is not the typical game that benefits from the early access, like a roguelike or a systems-heavy game where you can just, oh, add a new thing of content next week and next week and have some updates to come out like that. Like this game is story heavy, very story heavy. Yeah. You don't typically um, think of it that way. Although I will say um, 2020 was when Hades came out of early access and that game went gangbusters. Everyone loved it. So maybe that inspired the decision. Maybe that, but I'll also say like, yes, this is a very story heavy game, but I think what makes this special and we'll probably talk about this a lot later is the fact that it managed to pull off the D&D mantra, which is sandbox. It's not about a linear path through a story-driven game. It's, it's like you can literally do just about anything. If you can think of it, you might be able to do it. And I thought that they would like maybe scratch the surface on that in this game, but they managed to do way more than I anticipated. And I think it came down to community support and people saying, well, what if we could implement this or that and building on it for years? Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. And I absolutely agree with you. Like there's there's definitely, you know, it's funny you say like systems heavy games. I think this absolutely qualifies as a systems heavy game. Yeah, yeah but, but not uh, <laughs> a traditional like, oh, we I can just add another yeah. mix in and it's more fun because of that. It's more like finely tuned. Yeah, it would, it would be difficult to like rewrite a lot of stuff, though. Apparently that is definitely what happened. But you hit on something important there, Clint, that I want to I want to hone in on for a sec is the D&Dness of it all. Um I think part of the reason this game is so popular is because right now D&D is so popular, right? They have a major motion picture that came out this year. Yes. D&D 5.0 or 5th uh, edition is the most popular thing in the world, basically. <laughs> and it's worth mentioning, I'm sure we can all share this real quick, but like what our history with D&D is, I play D&D all the time. Like uh, we have a like a, a neighborhood game night. Me and my family and neighbor's family play D&D together like... That's awesome. I had no idea. This is something we do all the time. Yeah, it's super fun. We've all played D&D together. Um, mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Josh, our DM, uh, we, we, did, we did in fact play a fifth edition campaign for a little while there. And that actually really helped me starting off this game. I'm not going to lie. Like I, <laughs> I came in like in a similar way that I did to um, Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. Like I felt like I knew what I was doing already when I started thanks to playing tabletop with you guys. Now, it's kind of funny because I've probably campaigned or DM'd um, four different 5th edition campaigns since it first came out. And I feel like this game taught me rules. Like, there was a spell of like, oh, I thought it worked one way. Oh, oh, it actually blows up my guys too. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. I, I think that is one thing that the Baldur's Gate series has always been really core to it is being a D&D simulator and of course the the first two were um AD&D or uh, second edition and this one is uh fifth edition which is obviously a huge difference but they really do stick to that you know this game makes it a point to make an attempt at mimicking real D&D's ability to let you do a bunch of stupid bullshit yes which is uh 
fun. Which is hard to do. I, I mean, when you think about trying to program out, like, how do you account for all the stupid shit these people might think of? Like, when you're a DM, you're constantly, like, having to adapt to the crazy things that your players are coming up with for a developer to say ahead of time like all right here's the 80 things we think somebody might do in the situation here's how we let them do most of those things because the second you start putting up the walls and saying well no we didn't account for that you can't do that like it kind of starts pulling the veil back but this game does a pretty good job of not letting that happen i think a lot of that is good level design i think some of it is some smart departures from doing D &D rules Uh, my favorite example of this is the jump action instead of rolling a d20 and failing it and dropping into the bottomless chasm it just says no you don't roll for jump you just succeed at it and you can explore around doing that way very smart move by them Um, but they could have done something different there and i'm glad they didn't yeah a lot of it's behind the the scenes too which i thought is a pretty appreciated like you and i and everybody here understands dnd rules but most people out there don't so that's a lot to ask for somebody to be able to understand all those rules to be able to play they make it obfuscated a little bit like it's happening in the background if you want to look they totally let you see but uh yeah you can play it without knowing any of this stuff I also think they made an interesting choice in terms of how they departed from previous Baldur's Gates. Uh, one thing that I'm sure Josh and I immediately noticed is this is a turn-based game, not real-time with pause. Oh, goodness, uh, yes. Yeah. So much better that way. <laughs> yeah, I think I think real-time with pause has unfortunately run its course for, uh, for the modern sensibility. And making this a turn-based game, which, to be fair, is exactly how it works in uh, Divinity Original Sin 2, which this shares a metric shit ton of DNA with, makes a lot more sense. Well, you say that, but the new Final Fantasy VII's out next year, and that's that's their mode. It's It looks cool in action, but it's hard to control, I think. I think the thing, too, is when you get a gigantic rule book, you're trying to understand. That's one of the things with uh, the first two Baldur Skates that I came up against was stuff is happening. I don't know why. And when it's turn by turn, and I'm like, oh, this guy does this attack. Now I do this spell. Um, much, much more comprehensible, much more legible. Yeah. And even even outside of combat where they're utilizing D&D rules, like they have the, you know, uh, it cuts in with a, a D20 rolling. And boy, uh, for my money, great. The best dice rolling sound and animation yeah. in, in the game right here. Never got old. Uh, Josh, you, you always talk about juice. This There is juice in this dice roll. It's like sure. juice. Good D&D juice. ASMR, whatever it is. Just <laughs> Speaking of ASMR, I want to call out the narrator who is basically your DM, Amelia Tyler. Uh, she is a fantastic narrator, and I don't think this game would be as good without it. Oh, loved her voice coming in. Yeah, her voice and the writing for her character, too. Um, I really enjoyed the flavor that that got added to the game. It felt like a DM was talking to you. Really did. Yeah, uh, an, an excellent and um, very well-voiced DM. I will say there was not a bad performance in the game that I can remember at all. Um, in fact, there were some that were just so... I wouldn't have said the narrator. If you maybe pick one, uh, Asterian... He's a standout, and we'll go through the characters at some point. But um, speaking of characters, there is there is one interest or one thing I want to talk about is this game's setting because it comes not only with um, with a landmass and a pantheon, but with characters. You know, you get Elminster coming around and seeing you in this game, uh, and if you are a nerd and read a lot of fantasy books growing up, you recognize the name Elminster. Uh, no Drist in this one, surprisingly. Uh, that that kind of shocked me, actually. <laughs> Good on them. Good on them. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, you I, also I, meet uh, Volo, who's um, 
not so much from the uh, novels as far as I know, but he authored a couple of guidebooks you could purchase for cold hard cash at your gaming store. Volo's Guide to Everything. I have that. His name's on a book. Uh, a real live uh, physical book. Um, but the last thing I want to say about this game in regards to like the, the previous games before we get into more about this one is like what this game actually does with the source material it's working with as far as Baldur's Gate. You know, the Ballspawn saga, which is Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, is over. Did this game actually need to be called Baldur's Gate to be a great game? In my opinion, no. <laughs> but... It's just letting people know what was up. It's like, hey, you guys like that, right? Well, we're doing more of that. Yeah, I mean, it's a game that's worthy of the namesake, right? It's in the Forgotten Realms. It's synonymous with D&D now. Like, I feel like mm -hmm. one just begets the other. Like, it's just marketing. It's the I default mean, it takes place for, in the same world. That is true. And doesn't Act 3 get you to Baldur's Gate? It sure does. You, I would say everything winds up there, so... It, it's really... I, I, like, there are characters from those two games that we'll talk about as well that, that make reappearances, and, you know, overall, like, the spirit is there, even although there are all of these changes that we've talked about. To my mind, like, this didn't need to be called Baldur's Gate to be a great game, but it absolutely does share a lot of, like, what made Baldur's Gate special, in my opinion, and, uh... You know, I know in one of our Baldur's Gate podcasts, Josh, you said uh, Forgotten Realms feels sort of like a generic fantasy setting. It absolutely does, but after spending like 150 hours, well, probably so approaching that, 200 sorry, hours. Sorry, is that just, just one year, game? Like, <laughs> No, you know, uh, yeah, probably approaching two, almost 200 hours across the three games this year. I do feel like there's a little more to the Forgotten Realms than I gave it credit for initially. Yeah, yeah I'd agree with that. Um, they have built it up and built into it, uh, although... If you're if you're giving like a one word description of each of these different major D and D worlds, generic probably wouldn't be <laughs> generic <laughs> fantasies. Probably not too far off for Forgotten Worlds. Yeah, Forgotten. It's definitely a. It starts off in in that mode, but I think to that point, like the more you dig into any given aspect of the Forgotten Realms, the more interesting it becomes. And this is a game that does a lot of that digging. Um, but speaking of, maybe we get into it. Um, starting at the start. Uh, we all created characters for this, right? None of us chose an origin character. We all went custom. Mm -hmm. I did, oh, yeah. Oh, boy. All right. Who wants to start? What did you guys play as? <laughs> I'll do it. Uh, I actually played as Damien, my tiefling warlock that I've been playing in D&D campaigns for years, including with you guys. So mm -hmm. when I was trying to decide what I do, I'm like, well, I have a character I could just bring in. It's super cool to see him like come to life. That's pretty cool. I played as a warlock as well. Um, you know, I've DM'd a lot of 5th edition, but I've never played a 5th edition campaign. So the Warlock was one of the new classes, and I wanted to see what made them different compared to, like, the Sorcerer or the Wizard that I'm more familiar with. Nice. I, uh, I went Bard uh, because I wanted to talk my way out of things and uh, uh, generally be a face character. And uh, I had a blast with that. Uh, my guy's name was Del Midsong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was a goofball, but he was uh, he was fun, and uh, I really enjoyed playing a bard in this one. Filled out the party nicely. Hmm. But uh, you get, to my mind, a pretty stunning cast of other origin characters that you could choose to play as, but also you can recruit. Um, we'll go through that, maybe the Act 1 ones in brief, but um, did you guys end up picking all these folks up, your Shadow Hearts and Wills, Carlac? Yeah, just before we talk through like acts, who is your everybody had their like their core team? Their core party, yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. Who's your core team? 
Uh, for me, it was my bard, of course, and uh, Lazel, Gale, and uh, Shadowheart was the, the foursome. I had my Warlock, then Asterion, Gale, and Karlak. Nice. It was me, the Warlock, so Will saw no light of day, unfortunately. I feel like just because of like who I played as, he didn't get enough love. But uh, always Asterion, not because he was good in combat, but because he was just good to have around. Karlak... Because she's awesome in combat and in real life or whatever. And then Shadowheart, because, I mean, I was sleeping with her. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't leave her in the camp. (laughs) I mean, she she really could have benefited from a respec. Uh, Like, the trickster cleric is easily the worst one. (laughs) But, um... Yeah, I didn't end up doing that. I should have. But, yeah, I I mean, Shadowheart's a great character. Like, her character quest is fantastic. Um, as you mentioned, Asterion, like, probably my favorite character, even though didn't end up being in my party just because I already had sort of a, a sneaky person in my bard. But next playthrough, for sure, Asterion oh, staying out all the time. He was awesome. Actually, there was a point, I think it was mid, uh, mid-chapter mid 3, after I completed his quest line, so I didn't feel bad about it anymore. Um, I actually dropped him for Gale because, holy crap, the power the mage brings is not to be uh, forgotten. Like, he... I, w- I was having a real rough time with Asterion, and adding Galen just kicked everything up a notch. I like Gale's starting situation where he needs to be fed all your magic boots and pants. Um, <laughs> Eat this belt. It's good for you, I guess. Well, all of these characters that you come across, they all have, um, you know, kind of like a, the Bioware Dragon Age formula. All of them are, there's no like Joe Schmoes out there. Shadow Heart has this artifact that makes you immune from the tadpoles call um carlac has like a demon engine and surgically implanted in her gale eats magic because he has a black hole inside of him he has to keep happy (laughs) because he had too much sex with the god of magic so she got mad at him like these are not (laughs) these are like the weirdest stories we're like yeah okay that seems right (laughs) no these are the weirdest level one characters you come across or like will the blade of the frontier is legendary rookie level one. warlock yeah yeah he's been but you know it's story conceit you got to start off level one with everything i'm going to i'm gonna say that i think the the inbuilt like story reason for that is everyone just had half their brain eaten by a tadpole but maybe hmm. we should set up the story real quick um for what it's worth you start this game off in a extremely in media res high action cutscene where you are on a nautiloid which is an uh, illithid ship. They're turning their hosts into mind flayers. Uh, there's dragons as the Githyanki attack it. Eventually, you go down in a fiery crash, and quickly escaping Avernus and landing in uh, the Prime Material Plane on the outskirts of Baldur's Gate. And your first priority is get the tadpole they just infected you with out of your head before you turn into an illithid. Yeah, um, and if and if and if tadpole was the only word out of all that you understood, then you're a normal person because everyone else here is <laughs> a bunch of nerds. <laughs> Now, I thought this was a very, uh, very strong opening cinematic they had to it. Uh, you are captured. You wake up. There's a mind flayer. The mind flayer puts this, grabs this tadpole out of a pool with his big tentacled head and everything and uh, goes over to another pod, and the tadpole goes into the person's eye. Um, and then he brings one over to you, and you see the camera, like the tadpole coming into the camera. Um, not quite body horror i wouldn't quite say that but definitely gets you started off the bat of the three boulder skates i would say definitely the strongest intro oh yeah 
Um, this is like up there with the the Final Fantasy jumping off the train situation to me. Like it's um, or Final Fantasy VII jumping off the train situation for me. It is very like high action, and you're immediately like right in the middle of it. You fight your way out of um, a situation that clearly a level one character should not be put in. Um, to use a Brian word, I would say evocative. Oh yeah, because yeah, there's all these <laughs> th- those illithid ships, man. They're all flesh and sphincters it's uh, gross <laughs> one too many sphincters in this ship in my opinion yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's a little gross um but you know you you make your way out of there and you you land on a beach and you know you get to you land there with your newly minted level one character and you start gathering up all the party members we we say the the astarian the rogue who turns out to be a vampire Carlac, the demon who begs the question, what if a demon barbarian was Australian? And other things like that. <laughs> then it would be awesome, and you should keep her around forever. That's the answer to that. <laughs> but for anybody that didn't understand any of the things we just said, because again, people that don't play D&D would not know what an illithid sphincter yeah. is. Uh, <laughs> we're just talking mind control here. Basically, anyone that read Animorphs in the 90s, you got it. These are the Yerks. They go in your brain, they control you, and then they turn you into an octopus person. The end. And that's what we're trying to prevent from happening to our character and their party. Or not. All of you, you get yeah, to or shoot. not. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Um, one, one thing you do get in this game is a lot of choice. Um, almost immediately, the game's just sort of throwing situations at you, and you kind of have to react. Up to the point where most of these characters that you're meeting that we just named, your Shadow Hearts, Wills, Carlax, etc., uh, you get a choice as to whether to just immediately merc them or invite them into your party for the most part. One thing I really enjoyed about this was the aspect of choice. And it went beyond like, oh, you have a dialogue option um, to go evil or kick some puppies or something like that. Um, But they actually had uh, in the different areas I went through, they had like a good base and an evil base set up. And I played the good playthrough. But I assume if you do the evil playthrough um, that you can, you know, hang out with the evil guys, go party with the goblins and all that. Um, I actually was tearing my way through this uh, the goblin stronghold in act one which is the first kind of evil base you go through and i was just rampaging around and i realized i was attacking a goblin trader it said and i'm like Mm -hmm. oh oh he's a shop oh maybe i shouldn't be coming in here swords blazing and fireballs flying out everywhere (laughs) he's just feeding his his babies yeah (laughs) It's true. Yeah. And um, this, to your point, like this game is so heavily, excuse me, systematized in that way that you can take, as you mentioned, Josh, that exact opposite approach and, or maybe even not quite an opposite approach because I, I I guess let's set up act one real quick, but you land and you're immediately embroiled in a conflict between a druid grove who are, as you said, Josh, sort of the good option and a goblin encampment who is worshiping this God cult called the absolute. Um, and you can, you know, if you're me, a suave bard, you can convince them that you're an agent of the Absolute, uh, aided by the tadpole in your head, and uh, just sort of walk around there without angering too many people. Um, but the main thing you're in that camp to do is, if you're playing a good playthrough, assassinate three leaders. And uh, that's a lot easier if you don't have hundreds of goblins fighting you at the same time. <laughs> Josh, I did the same thing you did. I thought... My, my video game brain kicked on and I'm like, must murder goblins. And it was same for me about halfway through when I realized like, holy shit, I could have just talked my way through most of this. Because I had a warlock is charisma heavy, much like your bard. They can also be the face and talk their way through stuff. That actually became really helpful. But 
yeah, like most video games, it's like this is the good path, this is the bad path. But this game has like, here are twelve hundred paths. They're all kind of just gray. Which one do you want to do? And they don't punish you for taking any route, which I really think adds to it. You don't leave anything on the table by doing it different. What's kind of funny for me is like uh, in my D&D playing experience, when I'm playing a game, I'm like, I demand that every goblin has a backstory or I will riot. Um, And then I come through a computer game where you, you know, does D&D and I'm like, destroy all goblins. They're goblins. They're worthless. And then when a game finally presents you with all of the goblins with backstories, you ignore it and kill them anyway. Murder well, hobo. You know, if I saw the traitor first, then maybe I would. It would have been different. <laughs> Did you check well, their titles before you started slinging swords? Or you don't know? No, no. You don't <laughs> <have to read> <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I mean, I, I I can't really blame you, but this game like. It takes a little while to get used to how much care and nuance it's putting into literally everyone. Because um, to, to your point, like pretty much every, almost every character has fully voiced lines and custom animations and a backstory and a custom inventory and all the stuff that they have and um, ways to interact with them to forward the quests. It's just a lot. Like this game has so much going on. It's almost staggering. Yeah, I think one of the other aha moments that I'm thinking back, there's a uh, nearby to this goblin camp, there's also a ransacked village. And in the village, there's a bunch of trolls and a bunch of goblins. And I thought I had to fight them both, but at one point I ran into the trolls and convinced the trolls that the goblins were going to fuck them over. So they went and killed all the goblins. And then I took them out at the end. I'm like, well, that was so much better. (laughs) <laughs> like then trying to fight everybody and that's the kind of stuff you can come up with this in this game if you can think about ways to get around things in a weird way chances are it probably work oh yeah there's portions in in act two and i'll i'll be light on detail here for your sake josh but where you can basically subvert several boss fights just by like talking your way out of it for lack of a better word there's very much the the fallout dna here if you can convince the the bosses to defeat themselves through through discussion um which is always a thing that i like to see in games like if there's ever an option to do that on the table and also an option to fight i'm i'm glad that they have that duality in place you know it's nice well it's a choice that makes it a worthwhile choice like mm-hmm. if you're fighting people because that's your only option if all you have is a hammer then of course you fight, but if you can talk, then you have to choose A or B here. Well, we're talking like it's A or B, but it's actually like A through like quad quadruple Z. <laughs> like they've they've uh, they've really given you a lot of verbs and things you can do. Obviously, I mean, there's the basic ones, the charisma check, the intelligence check, things like that. But there's like a lot that the toolbox allows you to try to do in the world. Let's talk a little bit about that because we mentioned about all of this about options and, and ways of handling situations, but a lot of that's going to depend on what you're bringing to the table. They give you a pretty well-rounded party to start off, you know, so you can hypothetically bring a certain skill for a certain situation. But when you're creating your character, at least when I was with the Bard, I had in mind a specific type of playthrough, right? I was bulking up the skills and spells that I needed to be the talker. Um, and, and balance my party sort of around that being the way that I would try and handle most situations first before resorting to swords and spells. Um, but you could go a completely different way. Yeah, and like I said, I, I started out having a charisma-heavy guy. I definitely have the ability to do it, and that's how I play D&D anyway, is I like to talk myself into bullshit. Mainly me trying to convince the DM to do the crazy shit that I'm proposing <laughs> that's kind of what i do but again walking into a video game i didn't think a lot of that was possible so i kind of just reverted to lizard brain and just went like oh, we're gonna murder hobo these goblins 
until you start to realize like wait a minute like this isn't a normal video game you can actually do these other things and those avenues are open so i don't know it took me a minute to switch up i think this type of game rewards um multiple playthroughs so much yeah. more than a typical game will because it's not like um like i know we're playing a little bit of arcanum right now brian and it's pretty much like uh the first 80 percent of the story is the same and then you branch good or evil over there if you did a replay after that you still get that same 80 percent there but uh you know if you're if you're not trying to uh to kill the three leaders in the goblin camp then i'm sure you talk to them and they give you quests or something like that more than that i think you can recruit some of them like they can become your party members if i read i accidentally saw things in the wiki while i was working my way through that i didn't mean to see but yeah like a lot of those guys can become your your um companions then you have a completely different game like there's not a lot of games i can play for 120 hours and be like yeah i could do that again yeah, you can you can basically side with the the other group and exterminate the druid camp instead of exterminating the the uh, goblin camp, as I understand it. I I haven't done that yet, but I'm thinking about a dark or a, an evil playthrough. Yeah, me too. Um, but yeah, I, I respect this game because you know you get to choose a lot of different skills. You know the the D and D fifth edition skills and spells and such and stuff. But this game seems to have put a lot of care in how they're deployed. Like when you have persuasion as like a skill you can take in like an Elder Scrolls game. You know there's going to be very specific lock and key areas where you can deploy it. And in this game, there are just so many different places you can deploy something like that. Um, spells, for example, like speak with animals and speak with the dead in this game, like that combined with my high charisma allowed me to do some wild stuff to convince like uh, people to either give me information or um, you know learn about new ways of handling situations that I was shocked existed. Um, I think that's kind of the main thing here is like, how does this exist as an option in this game was something that frequently <laughs> went through my head. One thing I liked was the very first loading screen I saw for this game that said something like, you can speak with both the living and the dead, but the dead won't be inclined to speak to their killers. And it just sets a stage like, oh, okay, you can speak with the dead, but don't kill them yourself if you're going to do that. Maybe make it look like an accident or something. I, uh, I read about a really interesting situation. Uh, later on in the game, you will kill someone who is possessed by a god, uh, namely Bane, uh, and you kill them at the end of Act 2. And if you use Speak to the Dead on them, you will speak with the god Bane. <laughs> and, is it Merkel? <laughs> or sorry, Merkel. You're, you're, sorry, you're correct. It's Merkel. Um, and that is just crazy how much like detail they go into on all that stuff um you can do the same thing in, in act three with the the bayonite guy um yeah yeah just crazy shit in this game that they like that's just one spell right like speak with the dead and just to think about how much stuff they made just for that they had to give every dead thing something to say what is it that you can ask them five questions i can't yeah. remember how it goes. yeah not every corpse though if they're if you're talking to some no-name no NPC, oftentimes it says the dead has have nothing to say. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't have killed him, Josh. Eh. But there's you bastard. <laughs> he had stuff. I wanted stuff. I'm a good guy. I need the stuff to do good. It's true. Um, we we talk about all these options for avoiding combat and you know working your way out of situations creatively, but most of the time you're going to end up in combat. And thank God this combat is really fun and really good. <laughs> oh, the combat is smooth. It goes down like butter. Who drinks butter? <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know, to, to my mind, like, I got a hold of combat in this game fairly quickly. Like, it, it does use, like, a pretty... The turn-basedness of it made it much more grokkable than the real-time with pause. And it kind of boils down after a while once you realize this is... You get three things. You get movement, an action, and a bonus action, unless you're a class that augments that in one way or another. But um, there's a lot of different things you could do with those three. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely helped to understand D&D here, because then I understood, like, what what makes up a turn, right? I'm sure that took a bit of a learning curve for people that didn't understand that. But like for anybody that plays D&D, they're gonna understand, yeah, your move, your action, maybe an action charge, and then you move on. But the cool thing is that like a lot of the dice rolls that are happening as a part of all this aren't taking up a bunch of your screen space or a bunch of your time. Mm -hmm. You just say, I wanna do a thing and it tells you how it went and you get to watch it play out. You can see it all in the text scroll on the right yep. side of the screen, which, it, which is, you know, the modern version of the same thing that ha used to happen in Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, where it, you know, scrolled along the bottom of the screen. But um, it it will, as you said, Clint, do most of that in the background for you, which I'm thankful for. Um, the stuff that they highlight and put on the screen is, like, specific dice rolls. Like, it adds that level of drama that, you know is a pivotal moment oh yeah like when you're in conversation it's like i'm gonna lie to this guy and tell him i'm his dad and he needs to give me this information <laughs> fast dice roll Do, you you need a 85 to get this right you're like two <laughs> <laughs> i i found that in my 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 skill checks for conversation it was usually topping out at 30 and then i, I found a couple 99s um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh like, yeah, towards could, the end where it's like, you clearly don't want me to get this, no matter how yeah, bad I, I break the game. <laughs> which I guess you could succeed on with a nat 20, but I, I oh, don't know what true. that would look like. Yeah. Um, well, did you get, there's ways to get advantage in every time, so you're rolling double for yourself, which helps a lot. I don't know, did you have that with Charisma? I did with, uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have Shadowheart in your party, cast a Guidance. You know, this, this is weird, but... The, yeah, this game sort of taught me um, a little bit about power gaming in Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition, because um, they would there's some little things like that, like how it automatically pops up to use guidance or bardic uh, inspiration at every opportunity you can. You're like, oh yeah, I guess you should probably consider doing that um, mm -hmm. in that situation. And yeah, the, the game was sort of teaching me its rules as as you went in an interesting way. I think that's you know, there's lots more to say about combat, but the UI in this game. Hot oh, damn. Yeah. This is probably my favorite UI in the last decade, if not ever. Well, time out. Let's all talk about this. What what did we play it on? Because this is going to be different from system to system. I played PC. PC. Yeah, PC. Okay, so we all played PC. I mean, please yeah. do remember, like, you can play this. I don't know how you do it. On a PlayStation, it. yeah. Or an Xbox now. But to go back to the UI that Josh was saying, I mean, where we played on PC, like, I played this mouse and keyboard on PC, and, uh, you know, there was no way I was going to play it any other way. It just, in, in my blood after... <laughs> dozens of hours of Baldur's Gates in the past and other CRPGs for that matter. Um, it's so readable. It's so like wonderfully immediate as to what's left. The little dice indicators for all of the various actions you have at the bottom of the screen, the ability to completely customize everything. It's great. I mean, I'm sure it can be done. People played Diablo on console too. I'm sure there's a good way to do it, but I feel like PCs where it belongs. Oh, for sure. But yeah, like the, when you're in combat, the actions you can do, are shown down at the bottom. The ones you can't do are grayed out. Um, when you hover over an enemy or you hover over an action, it tells you exactly what it does. It has little, like, linkable text that you can hover over again, and you can find out what that does. And you're never confused about what Dazed does or what it means if you're 
uh, on ice or something like that. Like all of these status effects are very, uh, very signposted for you, very easy to see and figure out what they are when you can't figure out what they are. I like it too. Like you again, this this leads to something I'm probably going to talk a lot about. But like, if you want to enjoy this as a surface level cinematic game, you totally can. It's it's consumable in that fashion and still enjoyable. But if you want to dig in, you really can. Any enemy you you wanted to see too, you could click on and like almost look at their monster manual profile, understand like everything about them. Like if you really wanted to dig into the what's going on down deep and like the Dungeons and Dragons part of this, you could see all that. I think a lot of that depends on the level of combat difficulty you're looking for, because uh, you can play it on, um, I think they call it storyteller mode or something like that, um, but it's an easy combat sort of thing where you don't have to know, like, oh, uh, this monster is resistant to fire, but, but not immune to it, uh, so you don't have to pay attention to that level of detail, but if you're playing in a more challenging tactical situation, you do need that information. Um, but if that's not your playstyle, then you don't need to go down that path at all. There's so many different things happening at once, even though this is turn-based, you, you get more time to parse it. There's still a lot, as you said, Josh, status effects, damage numbers popping up, and all of it is, you know, I think I've mentioned in our Baldur's Gate 2 cast how it handles it so much better than Baldur's Gate 2 did, just by like the readability <laughs> on the screen. Um, but I won't say there's only good here. There, A lot of this is because of what it inherited from Divinity Original Sin 2. Like, you can literally spend an entire half an hour play session just fiddling around in your inventory, selling stuff, checking out stuff, re-equipping stuff, and they invented a new kind of menu tax, which is swapping characters. You have to go all the way to your camp to swap your characters around, mm. and then all the way back to get back to the action and but luckily that's not a big thing it's a click of a button you're there <clears throat> it, it does kind of ruin some momentum sometimes you'll be like murdering your way through the goblin camp as we do and then as like all do. of a sudden you're like i'm gonna click a button and just automatically be back at my camp and it kind of looks like the the goblin camp but like whatever it, it kind of pulls you away for a second i do like how they did that but i guess this will bring us to to talking a little bit more about the camp like i like the fact that you can go to camp all the time and a lot of there's a lot of cool things about the camp in this game. I just didn't like that, that was the only place you could change characters. <laughs> Speaking of complexities though, in camp, one of the main things you do in camp is level up and even as, as a seasoned D&D player, that's one thing I hit the wiki for every freaking time still. So I can only imagine the uninitiated like, what the hell do I even pick here? Yeah, leveling up is, I mean, there's so many I think that it's interesting because in 5th in edition, there's a lot of sort of interesting pivot points for characters in, in each given class. Like at level 3, you choose a specialization in every given class, and that sort of branches you off on an entirely different path of skills and um, traits and uh, actions that you can take going forward. And like for a bard, it's basically like, do you want to be a magic bard or a sneaky bard or a combat bard? Yeah. Steady Bart. Uh, <laughs> I feel like the game, one thing they could really do to like make this game more consumable for normal people um, would be to just come up with like three, like you just said, like three archetypes for each of the classes and just like, here's the build for this. So that there's like a, hey, pick which direction you kind of want to go and then here's the suggested what you do when you... Well, up. it does auto-suggest stuff for you when you press level up. Like, oh, it does? All this stuff, yeah, all the stuff is, mm. except for like spells, is all selected for you basically and then you can go in and tweak it all if you want. Um, yeah, I, I feel like there... I don't know, Clint. I feel like it, there wasn't an overwhelming amount of choice 
at the level up thing. I know for warlocks or wizards, you're picking the spells, but like, I think my most recent level up was Karlak, and it's like, okay, your HP increased, and here's a new thing you can do. Yeah, 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 but early on. Okay, that's true as you get up towards oh, like 10, 10, 11. For your aspects, yeah, you pick yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. two or three I feel like aspects. those first five levels are like the most, it's such a character up for everything. It's interesting. You're, you're right in that the level ups generally get easier to navigate as you go. And part of that is like you're more used to the game. But to your point, a lot of it is the fact that those that level up, those early level ups are critical. Like they're you pick your path. archetype. You know what you're doing at that point. So, yeah, you're just adding little pieces onto that. At the beginning, you're like, I don't freaking know what what abilities do I need? What spells do I need? Luckily, you have withers. If you want, you can respec or whatever. But this is definitely a um, direct sort of port in from Divinity Original Sin 2 as well. Like the ability to instantly respect kind of whenever you want was a, a Divinity Original Sin thing. And uh, I was happy to see it in Baldur's Gate 3. It just made a lot of sense to have um, that option. You know, why I think the time of like making a decision that you have to live with for an 100 plus hour game is behind us. <laughs> we should be able to respect. <laughs> it's a key tenet of D&D too. Like being able to make choices without feeling like you're being punished for them. Like you, you want players to be free to make weird choices. Yeah. And you can't do that if you lock them into them forever because then they can't experiment with it unless they're going to save scum the hell out of the game, which also just kind of... Yeah, well, I still did that, but, you know, for other reasons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of those reasons might have been combat. Yeah, very true. I, I've definitely found myself like realizing halfway through a combat, like, boy, I approach this from a completely suboptimal <laughs> way. And, like, AKA, I'm getting my shit kicked in and I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> like, everyone I love and care about for the last 120 hours is now dead, and you're like the last man standing. You're like, I got to hit F9, like, now. Yep, and, and I did that more than a few times. But the interesting thing is you can even do that during... Um, dialogue like you can quick save in the middle of a dialogue tree and play out conversations in different ways too which i i kind of enjoyed um and you get a lot of those uh dialogues and story advancement things at the camp uh since we were talking about camp i kind of want to continue to dive in there you get a lot of interstitial storytelling between quests at camp like people will just show up there and start talking to you the next time you go to camp or something like that and there's also sort of like big act end events that happen at, at camp that sort of propel you forward to the next thing um, and of course the romances. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of cool. Cause like, um, I, I guess kind of in D and D, especially with this, like you have to spend resources every time you go to your camp. Right. So you want to be careful when you do and don't take your rests. I don't feel like I ever really ran out of resources. I felt like I was being more scarce than I had to be, but they gave you another reason to want to go back because like you said, you get like main story beats as Every time you fall asleep, it's either a romance, this or that, or something cool happens or something else is driving the story in a certain way. Sometimes you fall asleep and a whole new level would appear. Like you're mm -hmm. off to do something else somewhere else. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed sort of the camp aspect here, you know, going around, talking to each of the characters like, whoa, can you believe that shit we just got into? Um, uh, and, <laughs> and usually like, yeah, it was crazy. And or, you know, maybe, yeah, we should bone down. Um, and, <laughs> often I felt like I seemed to attract the most horny people in the oh. Forgotten War realm. Actually, this was addressed. So evidently, I I remember thinking like two thirds of the way of the game through, like, man, I am such a desirable little tiefling <laughs> war. Like everyone wants to fuck me. Literally everyone. I'm like trying to talk to the, to the 
the big uh, druid dude, and he's like, hey, I think we got something going on. I'm like, dude, I've talked to you twice. Relax. <laughs> <laughs> but evidently, well, there was a, there was, they had to patch it out because the, the um the companions were too horny. <laughs> they to- they overtuned the horny. <laughs> you say they used to be worse than they are now? Oh, they were so horny. Halson wanted it all the time. I'm like, relax, dude. I got this thing with Shadowheart, and Gale's kind of sneaking up behind me too. Like, let's relax. <laughs> <laughs> I let him eat one too many of my magic underwear, and now he won't get over it. <laughs> You're, you were actually in the same exact boat as Meeklin. I had the same two people uh, that were kind of coming after me. I ended up with Shadowheart, but Gale, for some reason, like really was uh, feeling horny for uh, some bard action. Yeah. And then, and of course, Haslin <laughs> apparently just wants everyone. And he like proposed a threesome at some point. I was like, yeah. what's going on? And yeah. I, I've heard that his sex scene is crazy. It's like uh, he turns into bear form, which is insane <laughs> well it, this was actually in the run-up to the game right like the the bear sex was like a big marketing coup for this game in the lead-up to its release which um bravo to whoever came up with that situation well um that's not even the weirdest thing <laughs> well, all right let's just pause here weirdest sex situation this game presented to you and it wasn't even the bear sex i was wondering <laughs> through a village at one point heard a weird noise in a barn opened the door and a bear bug or a, sorry a bug bear was fucking an ogre and they were like what are you doing here <laughs> yeah and and of course they don't take kindly to that no so um no you you i, I do we all see that one okay mm-hmm. thank god it's i mean the game's just so full of that stuff and it's so entertaining but um I love that they didn't shy away from it at all. They're like, D&D is weird. Weird things happen. We're going to do a lot of that. That's part of what people go to the tabletop scene for, you know? And, you know, um, they leaned right into it. I mean, here's the thing. Like, why do people people like, like, sort of the recent Bioware classics, your Dragon Ages, your Mass Effects? It's because people, like, in your crew and your party, you know, you start to develop relationships and romances, and people really love that. They love shipping people. Uh, and it is no different with Baldur's Gate 3, for sure. I do think that the tone of Baldur's Gate 3, even though it was dealing with more mature content, was more mature than the previous entries in the game. It's that European but, influence. They, <laughs> they're uninhibited. I, I would say that the first two had a more kind of like immature, adolescent view about those kind of things. And I think this outing was much more well done. Yeah. Yeah, it. I would say um, it felt like sort of very, in this game, sort of Terry Pratchett-esque, like very clever about how it was going about all of, a lot of its dialogue, not just the, the romance dialogue, but like a lot of it. It's just very clever and sort of tongue-in-cheek writing. Um, a lot of it's very serious, of course, too, but I feel like it's it's bringing some of that Baldur's Gate campiness, but sort of classing it up a little more than perhaps it used to be. Classier. Good way just, to put it. Yeah. Bear sex, but classy. <laughs> classy. <laughs> Bug bear sex, but classy. Maybe a little, little less classy. I know we've talked a little bit about sort of the various acts. You know, we talked a lot, it sounds, about like Act 1 where you're out in the wilderness. Uh, Josh, I know you have recently been into Act 2, right? That's right. I'm halfway through it right now. 
so you've been wandering about the the Shadowlands. Uh, suddenly you're in uh, the Upside Down. Oh, sorry, I mean the Shadow Blighted Lands. <laughs> that was a pretty cool setting. I think, uh, I mean, the first setting was, I don't want to use Josh's word here, but generic. But I mean, kind of, you're in the wilderness setting, like in a goblin camp. This is pretty standard fare for, um, you know, our RPG. Not not in a bad way. I never thought, like, man, this is boring. It's just like, you know, this is pretty standard. But the uh, I think Act 2 was my favorite, like, setting of the game. It was good. I, I think it started off super strong with that first Shadows encounter. Yeah. Where you have to, like, have the torch and be aware of where the light is. Um, I was kind of sad that that, so far, seems to have been the only encounter of that kind I've, I've had. I thought, like, oh, I have to change up my tactics over here. But then you get the Moonlight Torch and everything's fun then. Or everything's back to normal. Yeah, they do kind of, they, they started off being really like restrictive and i think this was by design right like they want you to uh, sort of straighten narrow path it to the last light in and then after that you know they open it up and sort of you're peeling away layers of the onion slowly at, at that point and you're kind of free to do what you want there are options though it turns out you find out that the lamp you're using is really torturing a, a you know a pixie or whatever and you have to choose like hey do i want to continue to have this protection or am i going to be a good guy and let this Thing go in which case I assume you're without your lantern again and Josh we're back to what you were talking about but I was a dick and said I don't give a shit I don't want to deal with that I did free the pixie actually oh, but did. if you free the pixie the pixie gives you a little bell that summons you and the pixie can bless you and you get the same effect so yeah it, it, it wasn't <laughs> all right so it's a non wasn't yeah kind of and, but there's another way to handle it entirely which is interesting because um another person you're dealing with in this chapter is Isabel who is a priestess of saloon the moon goddess and that person can also give you a blessing that allows you to traverse the various you know fog in the uh, shadow blighted land so it's there's a lot of different ways to handle it as we talked about in act one there's just a lot of different shit going on that you could do that's a cool subversion effect like the fact that you can make four or five different choices again you can only program so many things but to give you other options to where it feels organic regardless of how you choose that's a that's a good sleight of hand trick that they pull off pretty well one of the kind of uh, missteps I think the game made is in some of the level design. Um, you can explore an area without knowing why you're doing it, and then you kind of figure it out from a quest line that pops up and tells you information. Like, happened to me twice. Uh, first time in the Grim Forge, where I wander around and all of a sudden I have a quest to free near from a pile of rubble. I'm like, why do I give a damn about that? And after I explored literally everything else, I found out I need his moonlight lantern to get through the Shadowlands. I'm like, okay, that's where this quest came from. But that was off the main route in that base. Like, you go to talk to the guys drinking at the tavern, and they tell you that. Uh, happened again with the Temple of Shar, where I detoured into that. And I think that's where, um, you know, that's where I am right now. But that's big quest sort of thing. I thought I was on a sort of side quest, but then I learned from the quest journal that, oh, this is important here. So I think that's kind of a rare misstep with this game where they don't necessarily design these things where it's always natural the way it flows, the information flows to you about why you're exploring what you're doing. But the flip side of that would be not explaining any of the plethora stuff coming at you. So I feel like they erred in the direction of greater good personally it's kind of one of those pitfalls of like making a game so open that like yes you can wander in an area where something specifically story driven is happening and they kind of need to just catch you up in media res 
which is never going to be the elegant solution of the, you know, carefully crafted quest line that they expect you to go down. But, you know, I think it could be a simple level map design sort of thing. Take the Grimforge uh, issue. They could have put those guys right next to the dock so they're the first people you talk to when you get off of it at the Grimforge. And you're like, oh, okay, here's what I got to do. But it was off to the side. So I did everything else in the Grimforge before I did that. Yeah, it's it's fair, and I I ran into the same situation you did with Shar's Temple. To be honest, like I in, initially stumbled in there before getting the quest that would you know eventually make me realize that that's a thing I needed to do, having to do with the Night Song, who ends up that's an interesting twist right there. The Night Song being uh, an actual Deva that you're rescuing and then fights alongside you for the rest of the game. It's so fucking cool. Um, <laughs> well, if and, you uh, choose that again, you can just murder her on the spot, and it's. Then but I don't know. How what could you? <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I don't know. Like, there's so many like areas or things like that in this game. You know, the decisions, the branching paths, and what I really like, especially, are the ones that sort of flow between acts. Like, you save the tieflings in the druid grove in Act One. You see them at the last light in in Act Two, and then you, or rather, you see them imprisoned beneath the Moonrise Towers in Act Two. And then if you free them from that, they show up as refugees outside of Baldur's Gate in Act Three. It's just like and more than more than that, they're in the mages tower trying to better themselves and all these other things too. Like now, I was a tiefling, so I like felt like I had to I had to resonate (laughs) with these guys, so I took pretty good care of them throughout. But uh, yeah, like it gives you like consistency throughout the acts. They're very different in tone and the way they even play out, but they do give you enough consistency in between that it makes you feel like your actions matter instead of these like little microcosms that just happen in in sequence like i think i can count like over i guess more than i could count on two hands numbers of like big choices that echo throughout all three acts like saving the tieflings or kicking them out saving or destroying the emerald grove accepting or rejecting the the mark of the absolute accepting or rejecting raphael's deal um taking or leaving any of the companions in act one who becoming the elithids right like like you can literally at any point and the craziest thing was that's that's something that's optioned to you in what chapter two, mm-hmm. and it's not even a bad ending. It's just like you can continue. Like normally, that would be like you picked the bad ending. Game, Game over. over. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating how like far the game's willing to let you go down like completely weird alleys of of choices, um, and that's fine. Like I, honestly, it makes for like a really rich and interesting gameplay experience. Like. I don't know about you guys, but like when I reached sort of the pivotal decision window where they're like, hey, if you go any further here, you're going to like set off some big story things that are going to lock out stuff. I immediately like sort of paused in my tracks and like went back and cleared a bunch of stuff that I was like, know that I knew that I wanted to clean up before I continued on. I do appreciate those windows where they come back and they're like, clean your shit up because I'm the kind of guy who (laughs) likes to have, you know. All the side quests done, every little path explored. Well, beyond all that, there's just, like, this game is wide open. You need to know where your gates are. Brian, we talked about this. We played Sekiro. I played it twice. Mainly because I got 40 fucking hours into the game one time. I picked one dialogue choice, and it moved me down something where I missed the last back half of the game. And I had no no choice to revert (laughs) it. That's a stupid game play decision like when you've invested way too harsh yeah yeah when you've invested (laughs) this much time into a game you have every right to know like when you're moving too far past a point so this was done very well like again it's not obtrusive 
they don't say like, hey, you can't do this. You haven't done these other things. Like, hey, if you want to move past, you're going to miss out on some things possibly. And they give you the choice. So I like that a lot better. And, the, you know, all of the quests in this game are like of almost uniformly high quality that I don't want to like leave something unpicked off the tree, so to speak. You know, like it's right there. I, I know I want to go do it. Like if I turned a corner and all of a sudden I was locked out of it through no fault of my own, but through basically like wandering into a pivotal story moment, I would feel a little cheated. And what I would do is I'd load a save. But the game short circuits that. I don't need to save Scum because it has the consideration to tell me, hey, you're about to lock yourself out of some stuff. Do you want to reconsider for a moment? And yeah, like you that. can save the save scumming for, you know, re-rolling Battles. those ability checks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, and, and uh, to be fair, I mean, a lot of games I'll find myself save scumming in, but um, for whatever reason, feels less dirty in Baldur's Gate 3, which is always a good thing. Yeah, this is, again, where I would imagine myself trying to talk myself out of some shit with a DM and be like, but really? <laughs> but like, really, <laughs> I'm just going to do that again until yeah. I get the number I want. I mean, so, so to your point, Brian, like none of these side quests were like, kill 10 rats. This There's none of that standard RPG bullshit here. Like every single side quest, not only was it like impactful in a like a mechanics way, like you're either learning something or gaining experience or doing something like that. But like the story in this game mattered the whole way through. I never felt like I did anything that wasn't impactful to either one of my side characters or the story as a whole. And what I really liked is like the main quest was one thing, right? Finding the tadpoles, eventually uncovering the conspiracy of the dead three, and then finally getting to Baldur's Gate and taking the fight to them. Uh, was sort of the main through line. But the interesting thing about it is the, all of the character quests. And as you said, they're all uniformly great and all of them weave in to that main quest in really fascinating ways. And I think the fact that like you're telling the whole story through the sort of prisms of all these different characters is what really makes it like sing to me. Like you could make people's side character quests completely detached from the main quest if you wanted. But none of them were. Almost all of them had really interesting tiebacks to that main quest. And implications. Like, okay, let's say you do Jaharis. Well, cool, you get a whole new playable character out of that. Like, all mm-hmm. of a sudden, oh, well, there's Minsk from, right? Minsk? Yeah, Minsk. Yeah, from yeah look, look at me with the Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 knowledge. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I, I didn't know who he was, but I'm like, I've seen that picture before. I know he is from something else, so I had to look it I up. know that face tattoo. <laughs> yeah, that's from, yeah, that's from the Steam profile. Um, but, like... Yeah, like, they would hide major things. Not hide, but you know what I mean? Like, every single... I feel like every RPG ever has a weak character. Like, well, that one was a dumb side quest to do. I can't remember a a BG3 character where I was like, well, that was a dumb side quest. They really do make it count. And I think... I would even go down to, like... That's almost always the case with most combat encounters. Like, they're all designed, right? Like, there's no random combat encounters in this game right this is the same in, in divinity like this is one of those things that i really appreciated about divinity original sin too i think that's kind of like um D kind of has this idea of the combat encounter and they really did a great job with that in this game like an encounter if it's going to be some unique set of monsters or circumstances or something like that where you had to think on your toes tactics got adjusted um compared to like another great tactical game triangle strategy which had a lot of tactics but not so much variety in it do you know what i mean yeah you're not constantly in combat here if you're in combat it's for a reason it's going to be something new they don't this isn't final fantasy where they're throwing a new 
oh. random encounter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you've popped into this again. Like, if you show up somewhere, it's deliberate and it's for a reason. And it has to drive the story forward in some way. So I haven't gotten to the point in the character quests where they are coming back to the main quest line so much. They're more detached. But one of the things I am appreciated about them, even at this point, is they make the world feel bigger. I think part of that thought about this a little bit today but it's like uh, as the main character you're going around you go to the druid grove you do some quests you go to the goblin camp you kill everyone but maybe you do some quests who knows um but you're like uh going to these places you do the quest you exhaust them and then you continue on to the next place uh the character quests are more of a slow drip sort of thing and even if they're not at, at least at this point, the stuff that's related to the tadpoles or whatnot, it feels like it makes the world bigger because of the stories out there that aren't your, aren't your own. Beyond that, I think by the end, I cared more about those stories than I even did about the tadpoles. And again, that's a world-ending implication story right there, which wasn't badly written. It's not like that one's... This isn't a Bethesda game where the main quest is just dog shit and we don't give a crap about it. Like... It was a good main quest. However, the the side stories, the who you're fighting for isn't the world as a whole. It's it's the person next to you that you've been with through all these other things. And I feel like they did a good job of making you feel connected to those characters. Yeah, this is one of those games that like I, I you know, you know how when most games will like treat a quest as uh, time bound, like they'll say this is urgent. You need to tackle it right away. Like for some reason, even though there wasn't a timer going for most quests in this game, they did feel urgent. And it's because this game does such a good job of drawing you in either, as you mentioned, Clint, through the characters or Josh, as you said, through the world. And it goes so far as to doing it in its systems as well. Like everything to from the cups on the table to the fruit on the plates on the table is completely modeled out in this game. It's got some real like sort of immersive sim DNA in that regard. And it plays out in how you can approach quests and how you react to quests when they're given to you. And I really like that about it. Did you find yourselves changing your own mind based on what your um, companions thought of you? Changing my own mind about like how I'd approach a situation? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Like once like say Gale or a or a Shadowheart or Carlac would sort of give some context about like what I was doing and what the, what it would mean um, to the Forgotten Realms or the Sword Coast or whatnot. It would definitely color like the decisions that I would have going forward and like how any one of the characters would react to a decision I would made um, or that I would make definitely colored like how I approach situations going forward. It's definitely one of those games that encourages role playing and you kind of can't help yourself but do it after a little bit, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, we were talking about Bioware games earlier, so like, what, Mass Effect and things like that. I can't think of ever a time in any of those games where I would, like, I knew who I was playing as, and regardless of what my people thought, I didn't give a shit. Like, I was going to do that. But I remember, like, multiple times, Asterion was one of my favorites, and he's kind of an asshole, or he can be. He's a pleasant asshole, but he's still an asshole, and there would be times where I would do things that I would know was out of character for my character just for his approval, because I was tired of disappointing him. <laughs> <laughs> which I think speaks to how well they write the side characters in this game like you actually want their you seek their approval and you want them to feel like they're part of your group and you want them you want them to approve like you know when you see Asterion approves at the top of your screen and you know you're doing a good run through I was an asshole today a, a bloodthirsty ass <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I found a way to not murder Hobo and still made Asterion happy A plus yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, I think they all there's a lot of really good character quests that you go through in the game, but I think 
His is one of the best. Shadow Hearts is, is really up there for me. That's a fantastic one. Carlac. Um, Car- Car- Carlac's, it ended with sort of a fizzle for me, but that might have just been my playthrough, but she's just such a delight as a character that, you know, couldn't help but like that one too. I would have done anything for her. Like, not not <laughs> to give a, <laughs> not to give away my story here, but how this all ended for me was like me and Shadowheart had a had a thing go, and I saved her and helped her save her family. All this stuff, like we should have been riding off into the sunset together. And at the end, I'm like, oh shit, Carlac needs me. We're going to hell together. We're gonna fight some fucking demons. Woo! And oh, then I just like, and then I just like, pieced out. Wow, you went. You went. You ended up going to Avernus with Carlac. Oh yeah, character. We okay. basically ended on like a punk rock montage of us just like leaving everyone. Me, her, and Will. I was like, whatever. I haven't talked to you. Oh, the Will whole came game. too. Well, Will showed up because he's a devil. You know, whatever. Third wow. <laughs> wheel, man. So I'm like, dude, I barely talked to you. Whatever. Me and Carlac got a thing, and then we just kind of like rode off into the sunset, murdering demons together. That was our hey, thing. the band really... needs a drummer. Yeah, I really liked that um, that sort of montage at the end there, and and. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning uh, right off the bat. This game's music owns like the the um, down by the river theme and motif that sort of runs through it is. Oh, uh, da, 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 da. yeah, like that yeah, was like constantly super, super going through good. my head. It's still yeah. there. I've played this game like two months and it's still like. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, it, it that's because it's super like it, it's very effective and they use it in so many different ways. But in in that final montage with uh, Carlac and Will for me, um, not myself. I was like, ah, oh, you guys go ahead, have a good time, kids. Um, it's really, <laughs> oh, it's dude, we, really. Powerful. We lit up cigars and everything. It was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a good cool. one. <laughs> we went off in style. Yeah, I, I will say this about um, the end of the game for me. Uh, so Josh, plug your ears if you want. But I feel like that ending sequence just got a little bit too big for me. He's, like he, it he's was wearing earphones. He cannot plug his ears. It's only going to amplify the sound. <laughs> Fair enough. I think. I think like I really liked that. I really liked the sort of you know bringing in all of the various people you you made friends with along the way. Like that that was good. But what I didn't like was just how sort of long that whole combat encounter, march up the castle, Ooh. and then final battle was. It was just a lot. It was a, a, a long slog um, to the point where eventually the way I ended up beating it was I just turned one character invisible and brought them up to the top of the tower, and then everyone teleports up to the Nether Brain. So <laughs> I warned you about that one. I think I told you there was three key encounters that you needed to get ready for. That was definitely yeah. one of them. It was that and the Undead Dragon, and I can't remember what the other one was. Did you do the Undead Dragon? I did, yeah. I thought that was... Uh, there's some there's some wicked bosses in this game, but to, to, to my mind, like the ones you just mentioned are the three hardest. Uh, Raphael is the other hardest oh i didn't fight Raphael. i liked him too much like yes i know he's trying to screw me over and steal my soul at every but i'm like ah but who doesn't yeah yeah like i i see you there like we all know you're trying to like steal my soul but gotcha we had like a weird thing i i got to the point where i could do that battle and i ended up not doing it because i like i got to it and i was like this is gonna take me many tries and honestly i don't really care for the story implications of it that much so i'm just gonna leave uh, but he does also have a really incredible song playing where it's sort of like a opera that he is singing while fighting you. No way. It's, it's a wild. <laughs> just go Google that. It's really D- good. Devil's going to devil. <laughs> I couldn't be mad at him for being an asshole because I'm like, that's who you are. You be you. I see you. Um, he was just suave enough that he didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> hell and hell. Hell has its wars. Hell, hell. <laughs>
Effect in the cause, curtain falls, but hold your applause. Squirm, squirm, for now down here come the claws. He's, he's a great character. Like, Raphael, I like how they introduce him right at the beginning, and he's still right there, right at the end of the game. Really so great character. So, what happens if you beat him? Do you take the hammer then, and then use that yeah. to free Orpheus? You can, yeah, and that's that's one way to take the fight to the Netherbrain. Uh, I didn't end up doing that, because as I said, Raphael's fight was just one step too far for my party at the time, and uh, I decided to go the other way. Um, I, I liked him too much, so I turned back, plus uh, Lazelle got abducted. Um, and killed actually she got murdered um and, oh, sac- no. and sacrificed a ball um <laughs> which was annoying however her and Shadowheart were always fighting and since you know i've got a thing with Shadowheart, is like guys if i obviously if i have to pick one of you to get murdered and go away and stop causing problems i guess it's got to be you lizelle <laughs> i think they pick like the person you use least maybe because for me halson got uh captured but no. let's talk a little bit about yeah, and I was fine with that. I never used him. It's because he's uh, but, too horny for you. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> did you save him or did he die? I gotta know. Like, can you save him? I you save, save him. him. Yeah, you can. You mm. can save him. So, um, so when you get to Act Three, um, eventually, you know, it's Baldur's Gate. We already mentioned that, but there is just so much stuff that's immediately thrown at you. Like, tons of quests open up. It feels incredibly overwhelming. Um, but you find out that you need to go after the uh, final two Nether Stones. The other two of the dead three are in the city somewhere. You have to kill them. It's just a lot. Yeah, I'll be honest. I played this game hard, Act 1 and 2, like nonstop. And then I got to Act 3, and it was so open that I think my brain was just like, I don't know what to do. And then I just like peaced out. I couldn't deal with it. I had to, I like left the game for like a couple weeks. Because like in Act 1 and 2, it's very focused. Like, yes, there's areas, but you can like really, to Josh's point, do everything in an area and then move on. You cannot do that once you get to Baldur's Gate. It's too It's big. too interconnected. Yeah. Yes. And I think it, it also, it encourages a lot more like out of the box thinking. Like even just getting into Baldur's Gate is a puzzle in itself, which is interesting. Um, hmm. You know, I think the straight and narrow that most people will go on is getting tossed into prison and then suddenly you're in Baldur's Gate because you're in its prison. But um, Ooh, I, didn't do I that. ended up, I ended up jumping down the side of a mountain and climbing in the side door of the keep on the, on the bridge on the way in. Um, I talked some shit to the guards and they let me through. Yeah, well, I guess I, I wasn't a good enough talker. That was the one thing I wasn't good enough at talking for in the game. Shocking. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, Act 1 to me was like magical just because the game was new. Act 2 has its own special qualities that we already talked about. But Act 3 to me, and maybe because I played it a little later and some of the bugs had been fixed, was really where I just was shocked that this game could continue to be as good and powerful as it was. That was another thing. I did wait too. So it was a little too open, but I also heard that they were patching some of the act three weirdness. So I gave it a couple weeks to try to get through that. I will say the beginning of act three is daunting just because it's so wide open and you're just like, I don't even know what to do. Um, but late act three has some of the coolest shit in the entire game, like bar none. So it's worth doing. And there's really cool callouts to the um, to Baldur's Gate One in that game as well because you're revisiting settings that were in that game. Like you get to see uh, the old city where the Temple of Ball is, uh, and you fight the current Avatar of Ball down there, Orin. And that is, you know, there's a callback to the, the a Slayer who is a, a frequent flyer of the Baldur's Gate Two story, um, and then 
you also get to go to the Iron Throne, which was a pivotal location in Baldur's Gate 1, but it's the bottom of a lake because after the events of Baldur's Gate 1, they dismantled it and chucked Ooh, it in the bay. That was the third one, yes. So that was the third combat encounter where you're trying to save everyone in the slight amount of time. Yes, that was, that was one of the most nerve-wracking situations in the entire game. Basically, you have X amount of turns to save as many people as you can and get out before the place implodes and you all drown. That was probably my favorite, one of my favorite sequences of the whole game. It was just incredible. Like, yes. I, I loved it. Um, there's a lot of really great stuff in Act 3, and like, it's where I think they like flex the hardest in terms of like not just paying homage to the legacy, but just putting the, your party in interesting situations. And by this point, you're like level 10 through 12, so you are prepared for them, probably. <laughs> yeah just and again thinking back through the like the development process of this whole thing like this sat in as you said for three freaking years in early access where only where where only act one was available to my mind most developers would have fine-tuned the shit out of act one and then everything else would have been kind of like slapped on it yeah yeah act three was insane how much they packed into it and how much polish went into that like to give you, like, I'm thinking back to like Mass Effect. Like, so many games, those games were awesome, but you got to the end and it was like, do you pick red, blue, or green? No. <laughs> In this game, they're like, we're going to try to give you absolutely every bit of payoff for every little crazy thing you possibly could have done through the whole story. And I felt like they did it really well. No, I'm, I'm with you. Like, this game, it really, like, right up until the very end, it's uh, respecting your choices, making sure that the, the choices you made along the way continue to feel meaningful and, uh, you know, I really, I respect it a lot for that. Um, this is a game that's made with a lot of care and a lot of care for like the player's feelings as well, which is uh, part of the reason why it feels so good to play, I guess. Yeah, and they're making you feel those feelings. So I like that they like double down on them and they even use them against you in plenty of times. However, that's a that's the sign of a good piece of art and a good, a good game. They managed to garner the feelings and then make you pay for them. <laughs> and they make it count for yeah. sure. I just think it's funny that we've, all played this game for 100 plus hours and we've been talking about it for an hour and a half and we really never talked about the story at all we're just like this is a game where you do stuff because i assume all three of us saw this in a very different light and the story's probably wildly different between the three of us true yeah there's there's like probably startlingly little that is uh similar or exactly the same amongst our playthroughs which uh is also fascinating yeah o- only horny Halson. that's the only that's the only <laughs> common ground the unifying factor, Horny yeah. Nelson. So, with that, let's tell our own stories of Baldur's Gate 3 with some three-word reviews. Alright, my three-word review is A Translation Perfected. Baldur's Gate, the original, was famous for bringing the then-relatively-niche game of Dungeons & Dragons to the PC. More than two decades later, the series' third incarnation takes up the torch and brings its interpretation of 5th edition to the table. Listeners of the podcast will know that I struggled with the first two iterations in the series, not particularly because of 2nd edition rules, but rather because of the ways those were interpreted. Weaknesses of the system were magnified rather than smoothed over. Baldur's Gate was everything that I was looking for in a D&D PC game. It had 
amazing UI and tooltips to help you understand the rules without having to keep a player's handbook next to your computer. 5th edition is light years ahead of 2nd edition, particularly in keeping things balanced, keeping things moving, and not getting bogged down in the minutia of building the uber-powerful wizard. Baldur's Gate brings these rules to life in a compelling world with tight combat, wonderful storytelling, and an epic narrative. This game is a far better dungeon master than I will ever be, and perfectly translates D&D to video game form. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Josh. <laughs> My three-word review is Isometric RPG Resurgence. Um, if I'm being honest, I had no expectation that this game would turn out as amazingly as it did. At its essence, D&D is about breadth of choice and the ability to think outside of the box and create absurd situations that constantly keep the dungeon master on their toes. Basically, the antithesis of the standard video game format. However, Larian managed to create a convincing feeling of an epic D&D campaign that was complicated and technical if you wanted it to be, but also casual enough for the uninitiated to enjoy it without understanding all the under-the-cover rules from the player's handbook. As I mentioned before, I love Dungeons & Dragons, and Thursday nights are very frequently D&D nights in our neighborhood, so seeing such a feat being performed on one of my favorite settings was a real treat. At the beginning of 2023, I would have been very comfortable stating that the golden age for isometric RPGs had long since passed, and most of what remained is just an echo and nostalgia from yesteryear. But I would have been extremely wrong in this case, and I sense a strong resurgence in the making. Now, I don't think a goatee list exists this year that doesn't have BG3 strongly contending or winning its top spot, which is crazy considering some of the absolute bangers of games we got this year but i'm very excited to see the doors that this game is now opening we currently have a very solid framework from which we can experience fully fledged D campaigns in video game format and i hope that other devs are paying attention because if this is the appetizer i can't wait to see what's happening next absolutely my three-word review is larian's legendary legacy baldur's gate 3 is truly a great game and with it larian did the seemingly impossible they brought a bona fide CRPG classic into the modern era while sticking to the roots of what made that series special in the first place. The legacy of Baldur's Gate, and what the series has always prided itself on first and foremost, is being a Dungeons & Dragons simulator. And with Larian's 5th edition outing, that mission statement is as strong as ever. And Baldur's Gate 3 is not just a great game, it's a game that shows us everything great about video games in its gameplay and mechanics, in its story and writing, in how it was made, and in the trust that was put into the team that made it. With Baldur's Gate 3, Larian reached a new level for themselves, for RPGs, and for the industry. By leveraging their legacy, the legacy of D&D, and the legacy of Baldur's Gate, they've made a truly legendary experience. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. If you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or contact, contact us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Josh Galecki. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care and keep on re-rolling.
I think I was skeptical about their ability to, you know, continue the Baldur's Gate legacy given it's been, you know, 20 years plus. <laughs> and the fact that it's a different studio. But then once I played Divinity Original Sin 2 and realized, like, what path this team was going down and how they, you know, thought about CRPGs, I got a lot more confident. You know, I felt pretty good about it after that. And uh, I it honestly turned out way better than I even could have expected. So... Um, I'm thrilled. I'm really interested to see what this team does next because, you know, all eyes are going to be on Larian. Like, they're up there in the FromSoft echelon now with uh, regards to gaming. What I hope happens is one of two things. Either they do nothing new except for make D&D expansions or they open this up as like a here's a blank slate D&D platform. Everyone, you can use this now to build D&D campaigns. Like, you don't fantastic. need to reinvent the wheel. This works perfectly. Somebody else just put a new story in here. So here's the thing is um, they already, I think they have that for Divinity. Um, like, they opened up the engine for that one, but I think they're going to run into problems if they try and do that due to Wizards of the Sword Coast and, you know, um, hmm. the D&D people. Like, they're kind of protective oh, of that. <laughs> I'm sure, but maybe they could, they could like, license this out like Unreal does, like, Here's your engine for a D&D campaign. You must pay us and wizards, and here you go. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I, would, I would love for that to be a thing, because if that's the case, then I, I don't need six other devs to try to make as cool of a D&D simulator. I just want them to come out with new campaigns, honestly. Well, one like, of the things we didn't talk about during the cast is the multiplayer for this game, which I learned existed I didn't know it was three a thing. days ago. Yeah, like it was up for multiplayer game of the year at uh, Game Awards, and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, this is a multiplayer game? I played 150 hours of single player. I didn't even know it was a thing. Yeah. No, I mean, people are doing, like, um, co-op campaigns, like, you know, kind of like you do a normal uh, D&D night, like you, like you said, on your Thursday night. And um, I wow. think that'd be really fun. Like, I couldn't imagine the amount of time and commitment you'd have to do to get through this game with, you know, three to four people. But it sounds fun as hell if you do. <laughs> Thank you.